you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm actually going to read from verses 1 and stop this morning in verse 7. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For whoever sees anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? And then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The Lord bless to us the reading of his holy word, and to his name be glory and praise. It's a good, that is a good, good hymn to land on our ears fresh this morning. The names of you all are written on his hand and his heart. And that at this very moment, sort of carrying over from that hymn and that line from last week, what we read in Corinthians, that everything in God's arsenal, everything at his disposal, which is everything, is for your good. If that's the case, it can be tempting to feel, well, if God is for me and if he would give me all this good, then where is it? It's in Jesus. He held nothing back. What a, what a great thought. What a random thought in my head before we start the sermon. But what a good thought. That if you're here this morning, all of God's infinite capability is present for you. He desires to be with you. It is a hard thing to believe that, and that is precisely what the fight of faith is often like. The problem is our sin, and we are in the way, and all up in our head, um, and it is hard to rest on grace. I promise this will connect to the sermon. It's just a random thought, but that's how God's word works. And we need to be assured in our faith and comforted by the power of God's grace. So did the Corinthians. And they weren't getting that. The ministers were giving them all sorts of trouble, jealousy, fighting, quarreling, different tiers of affiliation clubs and admiration clubs, following Paul and Apollos. They were neglecting the congregation in the true sense of the word as leaders, what they were intended to be doing. We followed that for the past few weeks and and sort of how they had latched on to the wisdom of the age and Paul had diagnosed what it is to, to find true wisdom and the true wisdom is the power of the cross. 
It's hard to see it as, as wisdom when the world looks at it so shamefully, so almost like it's such a foolish thing. And if they looked at it and their society is foolish, does our own society see the cross as foolish? You bet. But is the Christian's boast to latch on to Christ and him crucified? And then Paul kind of got into, you know, this, you're leaning on these leaders, but how foolish is that? Look what Christ gave you. And last week we just had a sustained argument and Paul saying, look, Christ is not only giving you the messengers of Paul and Apollos and, and Peter, but the whole world is yours. Like why, why settle for something so small for a sense of stability when the whole world is yours? And I think Paul takes it a step further today to say, and if those guys are your leaders, let me take just a moment to remind you in chapter 4 what a real leader is like, what a real leader would find himself doing, the way a real leader is wired and, and the way they should work, and that's what we find today. If we think of leader, if you dream up leadership in your mind, I think we all do this, and you can dream up in your mind success, well, what is it that we typically think of? If I think of uh, being a leader or successful in sports, you know, I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking of you know, shooting the buzzer beater, or I'm thinking of kicking the goal in you know, last minute. I'm thinking of kind of being hoisted up on my teammates' shoulders and people chanting my name if I apply it to music. You know, I, can, I think of leadership or success as being on stage and, and everyone's kind of you know, paying attention and they're, they've got their eyes glued to you. When we think of leadership, though, we think of that success, we rarely think of or dream of just the hours and hours that that athlete goes into doing drills. It's not the thing you dream of. You think of or dream of maybe a musician or performance. You don't typically spend your time dreaming about, you know, just running scales in your bedroom. No, you think of the applause that you'll get. That's what was happening with the Corinthians. They were celebrating their leaders, and their leaders were kind of being factioned off by how prominent they were and strong they are. We'll see later in the chapter that Paul has to kind of argue with his strength against these so-called leaders. They were questioning Paul, the apostles' power and leadership. And he begins to say, if, if you are dreaming of leadership, if you're thinking of leadership in just this grandiose kind of strengthened, uh, strengthened way, this very heightened sense of gifts and articulate speech, you need to think about what real leadership looks like. It's the work. It's the hardships. It's the suffering. It's the willingness to suffer. It's not in it for the praise. It sees something beyond it. And yes, there are times when leadership is glorious, but it's something that someone says, I, I will give myself over to. Here I am, send me, no matter what the cost is. And he's rebuking them for not understanding what a real minister looks like, but not just a preacher. Yes, that's included. But to the Corinthians as a whole, and to you this morning, as a whole. What does it mean to be a leader as a Christian? What does it mean to discharge our ministry? And I'll, I'll ask you this morning, you don't have to raise your hand, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand, who in this room is in full-time Christian ministry? And I said, raise your hand. Matt, Matt gets the answer right. We all are. We all are. 
It's not just me who has a sermon to preach every week and classes to teach. We are all in full-time Christian ministry. So let's look at our text and see how he diagnoses this. We'll look at three things. First of them being this, how should minister be regarded? What should be thought of? Is it just the praiseworthy image? Here's what Paul says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. To be found faithful. First thing is that uh, a minister should be regarded as a servant. They come to lay their lives down and to give. The word here is kind of got this root, uh, the, the sort of a compound word. It means under rower. In Greek w- uh, ships, they would be called triremes, three levels of rowers at the oar, and the lowest level is this word servant. They are under rowers. They are at the bottom of the line. They would look up at the master at whatever vantage point they can get, and they would m- march and row in tune with the call of their master, their servants. They're to get the job done and lay their lives down. Christian leaders do not try to be independent gurus or all-wise teachers, says Don Carson, but they see themselves simply as servants who want other Christians to see them that way too. They are servants of one particular master, and that's of Christ. One of the things that happens in this context with the Corinthians that we repeatedly hear is that they were puffed up in their pride, puffed up in their gifting, puffed up in their teaching ability, puffed up in their ministry ability. And if pride is part of the equation, pride says primarily one thing. Notice me. Serve me. Pride begins to think of itself in relation to other people as you now owe me allegiance because of my gifting or my standing, because of what I do for you. Maybe maybe this isn't just from a minister, by the way. Maybe this is you as a mom or a dad in your home. Pride says, now you owe me. Look at all the things that I do for you. And sometimes pride even says that. Look at the things that I, that I get done. But a servant says, I, I'm, I'm here to wash your feet. I'm not here to be noticed. I'm here to give. I'm here to serve you. I'm not coming in this on what I'm going to be benefited by necessarily, but I'm, I'm coming because I have something to give to you. And that is our inheritance in Christ. We're going to look at that in just a second. Our inheritance is in Christ is precisely that point. Put that explicitly. Right, we'll just go ahead and look at it. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. This is a sermon in itself. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others not as equal to yourself. It goes a step further and says, consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests only, but to the interests of others. Have, and here we go, listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see that? See that phrasing? Have this mind because this is exactly the inheritance you get. You who discharge a ministry, 
the Covenant of Grace Church or you as an individual have this mind because this was Christ's who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has bestowed on him the name above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean to be a minister? What is Paul recalibrating their vision to see? Well, our inheritance in Christ is that of service. And even though we have something maybe to cling on to, a position or a role, I'm your pastor, I'm your dad, I'm your mom, Even Jesus, who had the right to say, I'm in heaven with my Father, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped onto. You know know what he's saying there? He's saying that he could, by every right, say, I don't have to come down there. I'm not the guilty one. You are. I'm not the one who did this. You are. I'm just going to hold on and grasp onto my throne right here and stay right here. And the reason that Jesus' name is so glorified, and it says the reason why it's because he's the name above every name is because our inheritance is like him who let go of the throne and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And a leader in ministry who says, I will not serve them, but I will be served by them, is not in the inheritance of a Christ-like ministry. A dad who says, I will be served but not serve. A mom who says that, a neighbor who says that, is out of line and out of step with Christian ministry. It simply isn't our inheritance. Have this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus. If we have Christ Jesus at all, this is the mind we have. Many of us, I think, fall short of just a clear anticipation that if we're doing anything in ministry, it's out of service. It is out of often self-sacrificial, unadorned, uncelebrated service. Sometimes mocked, sometimes killed, sometimes unacknowledged. But that's not our mind to have. Pride subjugates. Pride takes the position of master, not as servant. Second thing, we have is that we are servants of the mysteries of God. Let me remind you as well before we move on Jesus' own words. So when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what it is that I've just done? You understand what I'm doing? You called me teacher and Lord, and that's right, I am. But if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you that do them. Ministers or Christians who are unwilling to be servants and seek service from others are acting as if they're greater than their master. I'm I'm above above Jesus. 
And so our ambition and our prayer should be, Paul's recalibrating them and saying, brothers, this is what ministry is. This, what did you think we got when we got Christ? We got a cross. The, the, the call to come and follow him is great indeed. And the reward is great. But don't forget it's a cross. Don't forget that it's, it's to be in a manner just as he is. The first thing they are is servants. The second thing they are is ministers of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. The expression here, the mysteries of God, isn't necessarily saying it's a, it's a mystery in that it is obscure, as if uh, Christian ministry is taking something that's difficult to understand intellectually and making it clear. There's, there's part of that. What he's saying is that the mystery was revealed in Christ Jesus. The mystery was, where is salvation? The, the mystery that the gospel comes to proclaim is that Hope for the world, the question that everyone has when they're born, teenagers, you're probably starting to get those questions. Life can distract you to not think about them. You can get on your phone and not have to think about real things for a minute, but it'll catch up to you. Some people do that for a very, very long time. And life's real questions kind of press down on you. A minister of the gospel is a revealer of the truth of Christ, the good news that in darkness light has come, and in sin, holiness has come, and in guilt, uh, payment has come in the name of Christ, in the form of Christ, and all things in life can be and will be made well, and with life uh, having this plague of death, there is one who has gone before us through the grave. That's the inheritance of a minister of the gospel. They are revealers to the world of the mysteries of life because the clearness is only seen. Light, as John's gospel says, entered the world. And for the first time, all of the questions that every history book has and every society has is answered in Christ, which prompts Paul to say, this is why I came to you to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. Like, this is it. This is the message that I'm coming to steward. And I'm going to do that embodied in a Christ-like life. And I'm coming into this scenario where all these ministers uh, are, are treated quite well. And they have little followings. And, 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 and they might look a little nicer and dress a little nicer. Right? They're sort of getting rewarded in man's praise for taking on the position of a servant. Well, that's odd. Christ got crucified. And Paul says later in this chapter, every time I try to discharge my ministry, someone throws a rock at my head. What's the difference between my ministry and yours? Which one is authentic? Which one's doing the right work? Steward must also be found faithful must also be found faithful. One of the interesting things, if you look at the qualifications of what a minister is in Scripture, um, who is, whose life can we say, you should go do this type of work? You would expect, according to the Corinthians, to have the list be all these exuberant qualities. You know, they have this really refined speech and they are articulate in, in mind and thought and they have great power. Maybe they could work miracles and that's not what you find. Who is qualified to be a minister? It is someone with a very 
ordinary life lived faithfully. So if you look in those lists of what qualifies a minister, what stands out, it's how is he raising his kids? How is his speech among his neighbors? Is he hospitable? Can he teach? The things he say, does he reveal the mystery of the gospel? Is he articulate on the hope of Christ? Does he teach Christ crucified? It's not these, um, these larger-than-life qualities that a lot of us, including myself, don't have. It's not it. To be a leader and a minister is to be found faithful in the ordinary things. A leader is a servant. A leader makes clear the mysteries of the gospel. And a leader is to be found faithful. Again, Jesus says, I came to serve and not be served. Mark 10, 45. The second point is this. Paul says to them, I don't judge myself. I don't, I don't even judge myself. So read the text again. But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I want you to listen closely to the whole sermon, I hope, but especially to this, because it's really helpful, especially teenagers. Um, Paul has a a remarkable sense of awareness in the gospel here. And this is, what it, this is a way that it changes his life. He comes into a community of people who have written him off. They've got other leaders, better leaders, more eloquent leaders. So they've begun to call his leadership into question. It's the same thing that happens in the book of Galatians. Sort of prompts him to say at one point, look, I've, I've got more credentials than any of you. I've been trained in this school and I'm Pharisee of the Pharisees and I've circumcised on the eighth day. I've done it, but I consider it all filthy rags. He's calling his credentials into question. He says, I'm not going to debate you on credentials. He says, I don't even care what you think about me. And he remarkably takes the time and effort to go one step forward. So let me, let me pause here for a second. Paul has this ability to go in and say, I, I am totally detached from your evaluation of me. I'm not going to be crushed by your opinion of me if you think I'm a good minister or not, or what you're calling it, my credentials into question. I am not uh, riding and bobbing up and down on the wave of your acceptability. I'm not going to crash with your disapproval, and I'm not going to be elevated by your approval. A wonderful thing for each of us to get a hold of, to not ride on that terrible up and down ebb and flow of people's approval. But you know who my worst enemy is on that? It's not necessarily other people's thoughts of myself. It's my own. That's the thing that gets me every day. Sort of like I've got good days and I'm thinking so well of myself and I've got bad days and I think I'm my worst accuser. So whatever that voice is in me telling me I'm no good or I should be ashamed or whatever, Paul could easily say, look, I don't care about your opinion, but be totally racked and tormented by his own. I think it's remarkable that in this text he says, I don't even take time to 
evaluate myself. It's, it's a useless endeavor. Because, he says, the only thing that matters is what God thinks of me. And forces himself, as a good minister should, that's why he's qualified to say, it really only matters who I am underneath the shadow of the cross. And who I am there, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a remarkable thing to have as a tool in your life. When the world will evaluate you up and down and you might totally just desperately need their approval, no, you do not. And even worse so, when you are your own worst enemy and your own accuser, Look at the cross, because that's your real identity. That's your eternal identity. And what you'll find there, this this text goes even further. Listen to what Paul says. He says, what you'll find there is not on the judgment day. He says, don't judge before the time. But what you'll find there is not on judgment day, the Lord going, you remember that time when you totally blew it? Do you remember that? Here it is. I just want to bring it up. Do you remember that time when you thought this and you were so weak and you didn't have faith and you, no, that's not, that's not what heaven will be like that. He, the text says this, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. The day, the day of judgment or when we're standing before the Lord, it's not going to be a, as a, as a miser who systematically shames us as we stand before him in his holiness, as a father who loves us, those who trust in his son say, they are told, well done, good and faithful servant. There, there are commendations. I, I imagine something to the kin of, do you see right here? Do you see what trusting me? That was great. Do you see right here when, when you were obedient in that? What a, what a remarkable thing. You receive your commendation from the Lord. When our hearts accuse us, we have an advocate. First John says it this way. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Golly, what a text. Like if you, this is what I was trying to get to at the beginning of my sermon. If you can only believe that, it's great. Because the truth is there for you. The fight is the fight of faith. And kids, this will be hard for you. Like, yes, the Lord loves me. Great. But but Sally Jenkins, the senior year, doesn't. Who cares? What a terrible name. Who cares? The Lord knows everything, and he loves you. For those who are in Christ, don't even judge yourself. You don't stand condemned before him if you're in Christ. Now, if you reject Christ, you think all of this religion stuff is just stupid, it's for your parents, oh, it's fine. But you have the same questions of everybody else. What's your life about? What do you put your hope in? And again, in our age, you can distract yourself for a long, long time and not have to think about it. Sometimes it'll come crashing on you too late when you do have to think about it. But we have mercy from the Lord. And a real minister knows that. And a real ministry for all of us is joyfully articulating the grace that we have in Christ 
And backing that up in a world with deaf ears with a life that gives credibility to the message. Does that make sense? A life that gives credibility to the message. We are here to serve you. And we don't care what you think of us. We are here to serve you. Not when your applause. The last thing is, what do you have that you did not receive? Verse 6, let's read together. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you, and what do you have that you did not receive? And then, if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The first thing here is that Paul and Apollos have applied these things to themselves, and they are leading by example. Next Sunday, we're going to take some time because Paul takes pains to describe what it looks like to lead by example, and he calls himself a father. And so this is what being a father in the faith looks like, and he will uh, discharge sort of what it looks like. But he says here, look, Paul, uh, myself, and Apollos are living this in front of you. We aim to articulate and authenticate this message. One of the ways he does that, one of the ways he is a good steward, if a minister is supposed to be a steward of the mysteries of the gospel, one of the ways he is a good steward is that he's got his thumb on the pulse of the situation. And he asks a great question. What a good leader often does is they have the ability to see the heart of the matter and raise the right question. Think akin to Jesus teaching the parables, right? It's like, I know what's actually going on here. So I'm going to try to draw out from you the real thing. And so we ask this question, why, what, what do you have that wasn't a gift? And if it was a gift to you, why, why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it? As if you didn't receive it. Um, to highlight this point, C.S. Lewis makes a, a, a sort of poignant illustration in mere Christianity. He says this way, every faculty you have, the power of thinking or moving your limbs from, mo- from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what that is really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, can I have a sixpence to buy you a birthday present? Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is a sixpence to the good on the transaction. You don't use sixpences, but I hope you understand the, the illustration, right? Kid asks for money from his dad, buys his dad a gift, right? He joyfully accepts it, but he's no fool in thinking that you know, he's, any, he's in the richer for it. Calvin says, for what greater vanity is there than that of boasting without any ground for it? Now there is no man that has anything of excellency from himself. Therefore, the man that extols himself is a fool and an idiot. That's what was happening to the Corinthians. They were fools in that they thought 
that from their own self-initiative, they had something so important, something so self-important, as that they could demand of the congregation service and potentially even allegiance. They completely missed the point. Everything that they had been given, I mean everything, was a gift of high grace. Perfect question. Uh, St. Augustine said it was this verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He used to believe that he had the capability of believing in God. He, He used to believe, I have the capacity for doing this. In other words, if you present me with the gospel and you show me the message of Christ, I had the intellect, I had the strength, I had the sort of moral uh, philosophical categories that I would have chosen Christ. And he said when he got to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he saw it and said, but even my intellect, even my life, my time, my hand, or when I was born, my station, everything is a, is a gift to me. Oh, wait a minute. The only response I can have is humble gratitude. The only response I can have is humble gratitude. It is to take a gift like this, right? Someone holds out their hand as a gift, and you find in your response not appreciation, but entitlement? No. Every single thing, life, breath, thought, grace, the gospel had come to them and has come to you as a high gift from God. And the ground for boasting is gone. Paul said last chapter, it was the, the ground for boasting in men is gone. Let, let there be no boasting in men, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What happens if a minister prompts that pulse? What happens if, if, if the church gets that right? And they highlight grace for what it really is. That none of us have earned the gospel. That we don't just come to listen to it and dissect it as if we are judging how good the sermon is and how good God is. We are not doing that here. We are recipients of God's mercy to us in his son. And the only response from us is worship. And so we listen attentively and we want the text to, to guide us in worship. We want to sing songs, but primarily not so that we get our structure and order and liturgy correct. No. We want to get grace right. We are thankful because we have nothing to give and nothing to commend us before a holy God except for his son. And his son came as a gift. That's it. You have everything in your life to just be propelled to worship and to give thanks. And, and, and a life that is not thankful in us would produce a ministry that isn't thankful. And therefore, we would not articulate our message well. We would not discharge the ministry well by not understanding grace well because grace produces a thankful people. Grace produces a worshipful people. Ministers and ministries must get this right. We must get this right. This is our inheritance in Christ. This is what he has given to us. I'll read one more section as a reminder as we close. Uh, this is Jesus in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. It's remarkable that our reading this morning from Romans 12 that Craig did said, there are some among you who just come with flattering speech. They're just ministers of flattering speech. They just want your applause and your approval. But he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay my life down that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This, this ministry we have of self-sacrifice, of service, is not just the idea of Christianity. It is the primary, central heart of it. Because it's what God has done. We can only do it in small portions and small ways, but we are pointing in life and in voice and in deed to Christ crucified. It's why Paul centrals his, you know, centrally locates what it is we're doing there. It is the pulse sort of which just radiates and echoes in everything that we do, including the ministry that we have as leaders. So let it be this morning. That if we think about leadership or what it might be in our church, that we don't daydream about the applause or the praise or daydream about just filling up the seats, being a teacher at a conference. Let a little bit of our daydream be about washing feet, being persecuted for telling the truth, turning the other cheek, dying to self, Let our ambitions be to be like our master who loved us to the point of death and who rightly deserves the name above every name.